First um, Timothy, and uh, as we progress through the letter, I mentioned that um, there are some specific commands given to Timothy to make sure that he's teaching the things that um, Paul is writing about uh, in that letter. And from the very beginning, I mentioned that you could almost think of First Timothy as an evangelist's outline of what they should be teaching, different sermons, different topics, uh, but not just public teaching. Really, First Timothy is for uh, churches to understand even how we're to interact with each other. What's the goal of our relationships together? And we see this in Titus. Um, I've, I've titled chapter one, The Mission of God's Grace. Uh, we'll see throughout this that that really is the focus, is Titus was to have a mission mentality. And it's not just that Titus was to have a mission mentality, but Titus was to encourage and exhort and admonish so that the church locally, the church is even where he may work, would have that same mission mentality. Look at Titus chapter 2, verse 1. Just to kind of point out the, the similarity in 1 Timothy and Titus, how Paul is saying, make sure that it's not just that you meditate on these, the, these things, you must teach these things. So look at chapter 2, verse 1. But as for you, speak the things, or speak, yeah, speak the things which are fitting for sound doctrine. Uh, look at um, chapter two, still verse fifteen. So after he outlines different roles and some teaching about the impact God's grace ought to have in our lives, he says at the end of chapter two, these things speak and exhort and reprove with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Chapter three, verse one, the New American Standard says, remind them to be subject to rulers and authorities. Uh, continue reading in chapter 3, uh, verse 8. Chapter 3, verse 8. This is a trustworthy statement, and concerning these things, I want you to speak confidently, so that those who have believed God will be careful to engage in good deeds. These things are good and profitable for men. So, similar to 1 Timothy, Titus also has these clear exhortations to Titus that what Paul was writing to him were not just things he was to personally understand. These were things that he needed to make sure that he was teaching to the saints as well. So just like 1 Timothy, I'm not going to be teaching Titus every Sunday, but maybe once a month or once every couple of months, I'll, I'll be wanting to return back and have some sense of continuity and making sure that these things are being taught on. But again, Titus 1, I think, really begins entering us into understanding the mission of God's grace. Chapter 2 has a very famous text that says, The grace of God has appeared to all men, and it instructs us. And I think that really serves almost as like a core piece of the letter, that God's grace is not meant to, to bring us out of sin and then into a righteous position or a forgiven position that just leave us there. God's grace gives us a whole new mission, a whole new ambition, and that's what we see in Titus chapter 1. So I'm going to be first reading verses 1 through 4, and we'll be looking at the basis of our mission the basis of our mission, Titus 1, 1 through 4. Paul, a bondservant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the faith of those chosen of God and the, faith of, and the knowledge of the truth which is according to godliness, in the hope of eternal life which God, who cannot lie, promised long ages ago, but at the proper time manifested even his word in the proclamation with which I was entrusted according to the commandment of God our Savior. To Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. So first, what Paul says about himself. I think it's important to note that although Paul references his apostleship, what does he reference first? 
Like what, what defined Paul first before being an apostle? And I'll suggest to you that that is the more important thing. Before Paul was an apostle, he was a servant of Jesus Christ. And being a servant means fully surrendering himself for the will of Jesus. Whatever Jesus calls him to do, whatever the will of God is through Jesus, he is going to do it and fully invest himself in fulfilling whatever God's will is. And for him, he specifically was called to serve as an apostle, right? So Paul's dedication to his mission is meant to be a model for each one of us. And that ultimately is what Titus is also to model in himself as well. Evangelists are called to model the dedication and the commitment that belongs to God. And from there to inspire that commitment and urge that commitment in those who are being taught. Now, how, how do we base ourselves in that? What serves to keep us rooted and also to continue to have a sense of zeal and passion for that commitment? So I think that's in verse 2 and 3. So he mentions that his apostleship was for the faith of those chosen of God and the knowledge of the truth which is according to godliness. So there was a sense of the basis of the mission is faith in God, but also the knowledge of the truth which is according to godliness, that faith in God and the knowledge of the truth leads us to countercultural lives. And one thing we're going to see in chapter 1, threaded through the chapter, is our faith and our calling is completely opposed and at war with the cultures of the world around us. And so our, our calling is based in being conformed to the image of God. Called to be conformed to the image of God in godly living, set apart from the cultures of the world and not influenced by the cultures of the world. But it's also based in God's nature. So it mentions in verse 2 and 3 as well that God cannot lie. Our faith in God is not just based on empirical evidence. So it's, it's not just that we're trying to prove scientifically that it makes sense that there can be a God. We're not just trying to prove philosophically that at the end of every philosophical question of life, it eventually leads to the demand that there must be a God because of moral law or the thoughtfulness of man or the questioning nature of mankind our faith, our zeal, our dedication and commitment to God is ultimately based in the character of God, that God keeps his promises. You know, I found that I'll trust people oftentimes who I even acknowledge struggle with speaking the truth. That there may be people whose their word fails, maybe they make commitments and they're unable to fulfill them, Maybe even somebody just by sheer innocence in a circumstance may be fully intended to be telling the truth, but just by circumstance wasn't able to fulfill their word. And usually I'll extend mercy and you'll extend mercy to somebody when we see their circumstances overthrew or overcame their ability to keep their word. That's never happened with God. We can fully invest in God's faithfulness. It's proven Long ages ago, God made promises that everything in the world was warring against God's faithfulness to that promise. It's evidenced especially in verse 3 in the manifestation of his word. When Jesus died on the cross, everything was pushing God to betray his commitment to his word. Everything was pushing God to give up on his promises. If there was ever a time when God had every reason to be unfaithful to his promises, it was when his son was being publicly humiliated on the cross. Even then, God kept his word. 
Even through those circumstances, God kept his word. And so our trust, our zeal is rooted in God's character and his proven faithfulness to his promises. Another thing about this too is God's authority. God has brought us into something so much unimaginably greater than ourselves. And so I can't presume then that my will or my perspective has any kind of joined unity with God's will or God's perspective. There is a a momentum of urgency in what God has brought me into. This is something that God has been looking forward to from before time ever began and fulfilled at the manifestation of his word. And it's eternal in its nature, not temporal. And so our trust in God is based in a perspective that looks beyond the present. Cody mentioned in the sermon this past Sunday, for those of you who are here, he mentioned that our vision or our perspective dictates our future, our direction. And that's exactly it here. Paul is beginning this epistle with giving, with giving Titus a definitive sense of direction. Our perspective is not based in the present world, but in the world that God has promised, which is to come. False teaching thrives on a lack of perspective. Presumption in God's will, uh, arrogance or pride, uh, the exaltation of teachers rather than the exaltation of the lowly. Um, False teaching always thrives when somebody fails to have the kind of perspective that in its simplicity is rooted in these core truths of our faith. And notice in verse 4, there's a couple things in verse 4 before we move on. He tells Titus he's a true child in a common faith. When you think about something that's common, how would you think it's valued? I used to collect cards of different kinds, and like common cards were like ugly, and like the artwork was clearly not as beautiful as like the rare cards, and then the rare cards were like holographic and shiny, like the picture would like reflect in the light and everything. So even like you can you can tell more money even went into the design of the card. But a part of the reason why these rare cards are more valuable is implied in the fact that it's rare. It's just it's not common. So you have something very special, therefore it's valued to be much greater. You don't trade those cards oftentimes because there's an association of great value. And common cards, if you lose it, it's not a big deal. You don't really think poorly about trading it for something. But that's not the case with God. The common faith is a faith that God is fully invested in. Jesus' blood was shed both for you and me, for everyone in this congregation. And the idea is that Paul is an apostle as a model. It's not that God was more invested in Paul than he is in you. It's not that Paul, because of his like, capabilities, his traveling, his ministry, well, God must have been so much more invested in Paul, so much more favor toward Paul, because of all these things that Paul was accomplishing on his resume. No, As invested as God was in the Apostle Paul, he is invested in each one of us. No matter what it seems like your talents are, no matter what it seems like you may feel you're incapable of bringing to the table, every single person is equally important to God. And Titus, as an evangelist, was going to need to treat local churches and each member of that church as equally valuable in his exhortation and his teaching. Then when he says grace and peace to you, it can be easy to overlook that and say, well, you know, Paul... So that to everybody, just kind of a nice religious greeting. And I think it can be easy to overlook the impact of what's being offered there from God. Everything that God says from this point forward is offering grace and peace. The commands that require sacrifice, 
the things that demand change, the uncomfortable things that are said, all of it is not meant to destroy me or dismiss me or disqualify me in my faith. Everything that God says is an offer of greater grace. It's an offer of greater peace. And those are the two things we thrive from. I thrive when my life is filled with grace. I thrive when my life is filled with peace. And the exhortation is, if you're seeking grace and peace, it's right here in the instructions. That when we are investing in our mission, as God calls us, our lives will be abundantly thriving with grace and peace that can't be taken by circumstance. It's a grace and peace rooted in the faithfulness and character of God's eternal and unfailing nature. So the goals of our mission, verses 5 through 9. For this reason I left you in Crete, that you would set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. Namely, if any man is above reproach, the husband of one wife, having children who believe, not accused of dissipation or rebellion, for the overseer must be above reproach as God's steward, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not addicted to wine, not pugnacious, not fond of sordid gain, but hospitable, loving what is good, sensible, just, devout, self-controlled, holding fast the faithful word which is in accordance with the teaching, so that he will be able to both be able both to exhort in sound doctrine and refute those who contradict. So I want to start just with these two things that he points out in verse 5. There's really two main things in Titus's mission. One, he's to set in order what remains. There's an important implication in this. There is an order. There is a knowable, observable, clear, plain pattern that can be pursued and understood in God's word for the church. And the reason why that's important is the world around us and especially the religious world, that's quote-unquote Christian, it advocates the idea of subjectivism. And what subjectivism is, when something is subjective, it means that there's really no concrete truth. Like there's nothing that you can say, well, this is absolute or this is absolutely right. And what the world around us wants to portray is every church is okay. As long as people just confess that Jesus is Lord and died on the cross and rose from the dead, you know, we're all on these different paths going to the same place and it's, it's all all right. And before I say anything else, I just want to say very clearly, that is a lie that does not find representation from God's word. I mean, you start from the basis of just salvation. When you look into God's word and you see definitively at the end of God, Mark's gospel, at the beginning of the book of Acts, where we ought to be looking to find our answer for salvation, and we find that salvation culminates in its promise in baptism. You're already narrowing the door quite a bit. And then when you find in God's word that the church in its nature is not a denomination, that churches in scripture were autonomous in their nature, you're narrowing the door even more. When you find that God's authority is what we need to make sure we are constantly searching out in his word to find approval for what we're doing to worship in spirit and truth, you're narrowing the door even more. When the church is not a social organism or an entertainment-driven organism, but that God's mission is of the spirit, a spiritual mission, you're narrowing the door even more. The reason why this is important, it narrows our sphere of influence, that we're not trying to be like the churches in the world around us. We're not trying to be the Garden City megachurch. 
What we are striving to be simply is patterned after what God has put in the word for us to follow. And that pattern is not just what we do in assembly. What Titus is focused on mainly is the roles of older men, older women, younger women, and younger men. Individual application to come to the full realization of each of our potential in godliness, to be completely conformed to what God has called each one of us to be. So there is a clear order, there is a clear pattern that can be found and followed. Second thing, in verse 5, Titus was on a mission to appoint elders in every city. I think this is especially interesting when you consider Crete. If you look just briefly at verse 12, Paul brings up a quotation from a prophet of Crete who doesn't really have the best things to say about Cretans generally. It says, they're evil beasts, always liars and lazy gluttons. Can fully qualified elders and godly families come from godless cultures? There are some ideas that I think we have to be careful to not consider truth that don't match what God has said in his word. Do we need the culture around us to conform to Christianity in some ways in order to have successful families, fully godly families? Can there be thriving, good, scriptural families with good, thriving, scriptural parents, women who are fulfilling the role, men who are fulfilling their role, completely and in a thriving way, even when there is no model of that at all or any assistance that the culture is going to give towards that. When the culture around us is collapsing morally, when, um, as I've heard some lament, schools are not uh, catering to our convictions, can we still consider it possible to raise godly children in a godless culture? And I think what, what Paul is doing for Titus is giving him the right perspective. The expectation is not that the school systems or the governments or the world around us is responsible for the condition of our families and the faith of our children. That ultimately it's us individually. It's fathers and mothers who are responsible for the condition of the faith of their children. Godly families can exist in godless cultures. And like what I'm about to say is not like putting blame or judgment on anybody who moves away from any culture because of having concerns for the morality that's within it. But I've often heard the idea, you know, we've got to move out of here. And I'm not talking about people in Savannah, but just generally, you know, we've got to move out of here because the culture is just so against my beliefs. You know, I can't stay here. I can't, I can't succeed in my faith here. Well, then what was Titus doing in Crete? How is Titus going to appoint elders in Crete? And think about this. If, if every family who could potentially grow to the point where men could become elders, if everybody had the idea Crete's collapsing, Crete is just, it's such a godless place. The people here are like lazy gluttons. Everybody's a liar. I got to get out of here. Well, there goes the possibility of elders with all those families, right? It's not that we're relying on the influence of our culture. We are the influence that rescues people out of the culture. We need to be the lights that shine in dark places. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Amen. Absolutely. The power of God is greater than the power of the culture. So 
one more thing about some principles of godly families and faithful children. I kind of struggled with like how to bring up anything helpful with this because I imagine you're very excited to hear parenting advice from a newly married young man who has no children, right? Um, so you'll have to bear with me, but some things that I've seen in my parents that you may find helpful that I commend to you that um, I want to try to model one day, God willing, that definitively impacted my view of God and my understanding of Jesus. My parents, um, they were devoted to sound doctrine without compromise. My dad grew up in the Lutheran church, and when he realized that the Lutheran church fundamentally was not teaching even salvation correctly, he radically changed everything in his life and sacrificed so many comfortable relationships he had with his family to devote himself to the truth, and my mom did the same. I've watched them contend for sound doctrine. I've watched them contend for sound doctrine among brethren and in studies. I've seen and heard things in God's word being discovered, the beauty of God's word being discovered in a topic of regular everyday conversation with my parents. There were sacrifices I saw them make financially to seek the kingdom first and devote themselves to the brethren. I saw devotion to the brethren as something that was apparent. I saw, I saw my parents talk about the needs of the brethren with great grace and mercy. And again, that was a topic of regular conversation of seeking to meet and notice the needs of the brethren. I watched the gospel radically transform my parents' lives. I watched bitterness get uprooted out of my parents' hearts. I watched their convictions grow and change. I watched them become more gentle, more patient. Uh, I watched Jesus live in my parents. Their devotion to God was not just something they did on Sundays. It was not just an action that they did when they were serving. Jesus was living in them. And my parents, their parenting was very imperfect. Um, they, I know for a certainty, would feel very ashamed of me saying these things because they feel like they failed in so many ways as parents and they credit any success in their parents completely to the grace of God. And whenever they say that, I, you know, I roll my eyes um, every time because not that they did anything of themselves, but God was working and living through things that they were doing by the grace of God. Um, they weren't overconfident in what they were doing as well. Um, something I've, I've heard that I think we have to be careful of is an overconfidence in parenting that does not seek any kind of willingness to change or take further responsibility for things that could be done differently. I've heard many parents say, I did everything that I could. I've never heard my parents say anything like that. They were deeply in tune with their shortcomings which led them to have very humble and sincere hearts that I was able to observe and learn from. We have to realize as well with parenting, the culture presses us to invest our efforts in education. You've got to give your kids the greatest education they can possibly have. If your child has any talent or skill, they've got to be pushed to the maximum. They've got to maximize their potential. They've got to be as involved in sports as possible. They've got to be as active as possible in anything that can give them any kind of fun or sense of community in the world. Career. They've got to make as much money as possible. They've got to have as much influence as possible. They've got to have the most comfortable life as possible. You know, when we look at the responsibility and God's expectation for parents, it's not education, career, it's not money, 
It's not community in the world. God's concern is that parents raise their children to love him. And if their education has to suffer, if their future in their career is not going to be as extravagant or magnificent, their influence in the world is going to be so much less than it could be if they were more ambitious for worldly achievement. God be praised. May everything else fail but a child's genuine understanding of the great grace of God. It's that understanding of grace that will endure into an eternity. And when a parent has proven that they have put that emphasis in their household, there we have a man we can trust to shepherd God's people. There we have parents that we know understand the focus of God's mission. And some general things about just the characteristics here of the shepherd. Um, These things, obviously this is one of those things that you could go into such detail describing. But I think simply this is somebody who has devoted themselves to loving the brethren patiently and deliberately. There is a very specific impact that obedience of faith has on purifying our hearts. There's a very specific way that our hearts are purified to have self-control when I realize if I'm going to serve this person, I've got to have myself under control. If I'm going to have patience with this person's weaknesses or the sin they're involved in, I can't be flying off the handle and dismissing them. Brethren need so much patience, so much mercy, and so much help. When people are weak, when people are absent at assemblies, it's what can be done to get more invested and more involved. This is a man whose heart is purified to the extent that he can bear various burdens without growing ill-tempered or becoming bitter or becoming selfishly ambitious, not walking away and gossiping with his wife about how insane the problems of this person's life are and just how crazy they are forever getting themselves in that mess in the first place, but somebody of patience who is willing to bear all things and believe and hope all things, to be kind, to not parade self, and to always seek God's counsel in everything and prayerfully. And finally, in verse 9, somebody who's proven that they take God's doctrine seriously. One of the common warnings, and I've heard, and I've mentioned this before, that I've heard from a brother who knows a lot more than I do, that warnings against false teaching is the most common New Testament warning. There are absolutely going to be teachings here that we will need men to take a firm stand to combat against. There will be absolutely times where there are going to be men who need to take a firm stand for things that if they weren't so serious or rooted, can easily begin to turn people's hearts away from God. And elders need to be able to perceive when things are even beginning to fester in subtlety in a group. Elders I know uh, talk to me about how they oftentimes are dealing with things behind the scenes, things that the congregation generally is not even aware of, like serious things that some are beginning to think about or talk about that are really contrary to the fundamental truths of the gospel. So an elder needs to be somebody who is able to notice those things as they begin to fester and take firm stands for the truth and sound doctrine. Again, not just things in the assembly, but conditions of heart, conditions of gentleness and kindness, uh, speaking against gossip and slander, 
uh, understanding the service that we give to God and the discipline of painful sacrifice yet joy. The roles of men and women, younger men, younger women, an elder needs to understand who God has called each of us to be in sound doctrine. They need to have a clear, proven handle on those things. Verses 10 through 16. With all of this, we're presented with some challenges. And so I think 10 through 16 really begin to speak very plainly on some challenges we have if we're going to strive toward these things. I think one more thing that I have in my outline that um, I really wanted to mention is that we are in a critical place as a local church here. Um, From what I understand, this church has never had elders. Um, There's been a lot of transients in this group in the past. Uh, There's a military base here, so oftentimes, you know, people just come and go. People move in and move out, and Savannah's kind of a touristy place like that. Um, But my mission, and I tell people this when they ask about how things are going here, my mission is elders need to be appointed here. No shortcuts, no being hasty and thinking, well, we got to get somebody who has the title. No, no, no. We must strive to have men who are qualified and when clearly qualified can be appointed and trusted with that work. If an evangelist is not focused on appointing elders where he is, he's failing and he doesn't understand. The mission is elders. That's the direction we must be heading towards. So the challenge of our mission, verses 10 through 16. For there are many rebellious men, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision, who must be silenced because they are upsetting whole families, teaching things that they should not teach for the sake of sordid gain. One of themselves, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. For this reason, reprove them severely, so that they may be sound in, in the faith, not paying attention to Jewish myths and commandments of men who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but both their mind and their conscience are defiled. They profess to know God, but by their deeds they deny him, being detestable and disobedient and worthless for any good deed. Did you notice the plain speaking in the text here? In fact, it's so plain that it can almost be uncomfortable. Like, how can you say such blunt things without having some sense of underlying bitterness or resentment attached to it? But that's really not what we find. And I think if we understand the seriousness of our conflict that God has called us into, the deceptiveness that is at work around us, the more we see the necessity of this kind of frankness. I think two illustrations might help with this. One, maybe guys can more relate to this, but Eva has noticed that when I'm looking for clothes to wear, I will smell my shirts and I will see if it's smelly before I put it on. And sometimes if it's only slightly smelly, I think it's good enough, you know, it's clean, right? But obviously, if it's, like, if it's really bad, if it has like a lot of stains on it, I'll throw it in the laundry basket, right? If it has like a little stain, it's not that big of a deal. And I think Titus was dealing with a culture where people coming out of that culture could so easily be blinded in understanding just how bad it was. We're rescued out of the world, not to continue to have some affectionate tie to the practices of the world, but to realize that God is at war with the world. And it's not that we allow influences of the world to infiltrate into our hearts. We must remain pure and set apart from the world, not by being monks and separating ourselves completely from any kind of friendships with the world, but by recognizing reality. So the second illustration, if you think about when somebody is engaged in some kind of warfare, 
And think about a couple different scenarios. Imagine that a people engaged in warfare are in this conflict. They know they're outnumbered. And they know that their enemy is trying to infiltrate through subtlety, through cunning and deception. That they have power, that they have the ability to deceive, and that their deception is even something that you know appeals to you. What are those people who are in that conflict going to do? Fortify their guard, educate themselves, and fortify their unity together. They need to know who's on their side, and they need to know signs of the enemy. Think about when somebody's behind enemy lines. Let's say there's a group sent on a mission behind enemy lines, the kind of influences that are there. God has put us behind enemy lines in the world. And God has called us, while we are in the place of the enemy, to be sanctified by truth. So when you look at how Cretans are described, liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons, we're called to be the opposite. We're called to recognize the world as it is, as being under the power and the influence of the evil one. And notice in verse 10, it's not just the godless culture, but in verse 10, it seems like he's referring to religious teachers. The Jews, just because they had a belief in God, were not Titus's buddies. And you imagine as much as, as the world would be discouraging, how tempting it would be to think, hey, these people believe in God. Oh, man, what a relief. Like, I'm glad I could finally find somebody who can help me out here. No, the Jewish teachers are not your buddies. Everybody in your culture is opposed to this teaching. The gospel is completely counter cultural. And the beauty of what that does when we realize it is it puts us in a position to rely on the influence of Christ alone. And it allows us to see things as they really are and to be motivated, not by what other people are doing around us, but to be motivated by the grace of God as we've truly received it. God's influence is greater than the world. God's influence is more powerful than the influence of the culture. If we listen to the degree of commitment God is saying is appropriate for this reality. Titus uses the word sober or sensible more than any other book in the entire New Testament. And I think the idea is, the reason why sensibility or soberness is so vital here is I can easily check out of all of this. I can easily decide, you know what, this conflict, it just requires too much. And the kind of diligence and commitment that's being called for here, I'm just really not interested in that. And the kind of pain that's involved in trying to obey God when so much is working against me and pressuring me, that all just kind of sounds like too much and it's too overwhelming. And so Titus is told, you need to instruct everybody to be sensible. Because the conflict that's being talked about here, that's just reality. And what we see in God's word is Jesus never checked out from that reality. Paul's an apostle, never checked out from that reality. And there are times when those around Paul decided they were just going to check out. And he still, because of his faith in the faithfulness of God, continued on with even greater zeal because his influence was based completely in the loyalty of God to keep all of his promises. Finally, verse 15 and 16. Ultimately, the issue is the purity of our hearts. To the pure, everything is pure. The reason why people believe false doctrine, become divisive, become embittered against their brethren, 
the first thing they do is they compromise the purity of their heart. The reason why sound doctrine is so important, not just with the assembly, not just with roles of men, women, and children, but even just the soundness, the health of God's word washing over my heart, nothing purifies the heart like the simplicity and purity of God's word. Nothing purifies the heart like the warnings, the teachings, and the exhortation that are found in the New Testament scriptures and in the ministry of Jesus. The evidence of a purified heart is a pure life zealous for good works. Look at chapter 2, verse uh, 14. The end goal of God's grace as it instructs us is a people who are purified. And what's the one thing that's said about these purified people? One thing. They're zealous for good deeds. So the invitation is this. Are you zealous for good deeds? If not, it may be, and it's likely, that you've compromised your heart. And the invitation is to repent and to not be influenced by your own view of things, by the culture around you, whatever it may be. God's purified people have passion, commitment, and zeal to do exactly as he's willed, no matter the cost, no matter the price, no matter who's doing it. So if there's anything that can be done for anyone here this morning, whether it's salvation and wanting to respond to the gospel or prayers of encouragement or anything at all, come forward while we stand and sing the invitation song.